Welcome to the You Need More Money podcast. I'm your host, Matt Monero, where I come to you every week from my studio in Dallas, Texas. Here's what I like most about today's guest. I'm going to just go in bullet points. Big personality, well-connected, meaning we have mutual friends, and willing to find a niche and become an expert in it. Man, when I see people finding a niche and really honing in on that, it gets me jazzed because that's what I did in my business for all these years. But her niche is called the career experiment under the quotations of because life is too short to hate your job. Boy, do I like that quote. <laughs> I particularly like her latest project called The One Year Career. That's why I invited her to be on today's podcast. Welcome, Bailey Hancock, to the show. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Awesome. Listen, I really mean what I'm saying about this one-year career thing. Um, You know, it's not supposed to be something that employers would want to embrace, (laughs) right? It sounds more in line with the employee, but I am of of the opinion that the employee-employer relationship is, is going through the greatest transformation in the history of it, and it yes. will never be the same. And I'm an employer. I have, you know, 30 employees, so I'm, I'm an employer. Um, and so I really want to get into this with you because I think you and I are going to be on the absolute same page. I wrote about it in my book, You Need More Money, and uh, I think – you and I are both onto something that most people are not onto. So let's let's get into it here. Here's where I'd like to start, though, Bailey. You have a quote. When I was doing my research on you, you have a quote that says, uh, people described you as this, a very bright student, but <laughs> talks to the classmates too much. Take, I mean, not hard for me to believe. Take, take me back. Where was this happening? What's the town? What's the state? All of this. Bring me back to the beginnings of you. Oh gosh, yeah. I was that was pretty much on my report card solidly <laughs> every year of elementary school. Back when, you know, they still commented on things like talking to classmates too much. I came from a tiny little town called Sebastian, Florida. Hmm. There's 15,000 people. It's a beautiful little coastal town on the east coast of Florida. Where, where whereabouts on the east coast? Like where Um me- directly between Jacksonville and Miami. So 3 oh, hours cool. south of Jacksonville, 3 hours north of Miami. So where and like Vero Beachish around Exactly, Vero Beach, Vero Beach same county. Okay. I usually go to Vero next when people look at me sideways like what's Sebastian? <laughs> um, but it's a great place to be born and to die and not a lot in between. Hmm. So yeah, I was always this energetic, curious, you know, um, kid that just was insatiable for both extracurricular activities and making friends. I was the kid on the playground that was like trying to have a Goosebumps book club, you know, in like fourth grade and, and just always planning things and organizing people and working with others has been the through line of my entire life. And it definitely started all the way back in you know, elementary school. Mm. And then, and then what, give me the transformation though. So how does, how does Sebastian, Florida, where do we go from there? Where do we, how do we get to LA? Yeah. I went off to college. I went to university of Florida, oh. got my undergrad there. I was a couple years older than Tim Tebow. So college football fans know that that meant I had a really good four years of college. Yeah, no <laughs> All we did was win. It was a great time. University of Florida is an incredible school. It happens to be fun, but it's also a great school. And I got my degree in event management. 
and went off to Tampa after that, worked at a convention center, worked at an accrediting body for college business schools, doing seminars, conferences, meetings, events, everything like that. But I happened to come out of undergrad right at the height of the Great Recession. I graduated in 2007. And so it that kind of has informed the way that I've approached careers because I was thrown into this workforce. And about a year later, that's when everything kind of went to hell. So I've never fully known a stable job economy and job market. And although I was at that first real job out of undergrad for three years prior to moving to LA, um, one year in, they suspended all promotions because, you know, there was a board of directors and people were freaking out. It was 2008. And so I saw very quickly in my career that it kind of doesn't matter what you think is going to happen and how prepared you are and how many right things you do. Uh, there are things outside of your control. And that was a really good lesson. But I got my MBA. I specialized in entrepreneurship and management. Mm. And then I had one of your classic quarter life crises breakdowns. One of I, mine? One of well, my classics? Or I don't know how classic cla- yours was. Yeah, mine but. are very classic. <laughs> Crash and burn, like, like look into oh, the man. abyss, die stuff. Yeah, I pretty much lit my life on fire and was like, Peace out, Florida. I'm moving to California to be a TV show host. (laughs) That really happened. And it was at the suggestion of a tarot card reader. So all of these things should paint the picture nicely of where Bailey was at 25. Super planned out. Yeah, very Well, I went from the most type A, organized, strategic, you know, kid to feeling like I hit 25 and I had never had any fun and followed my passions and had just done all the right things. And so I kind of had freak out mm. and I moved to LA and that was seven years ago. Mm, gotcha. So when you say freak out, you mean like party, that whole freak out, not worry kind about of. career? Yeah, I, it was less about career because I was still hanging on to my job at the time. But I just got to the point where I was actually married. I had gotten married at 23, mm. which nobody should be allowed to get married till they're 30 at minimum is my new philosophy. <laughs> Why that didn't work out? It didn't work out. I bought a home in July of 2007. I don't know if you recall the movie, The Big Short. Uh, That was me. You were really, Uh, I mean, you were like doing the white picket fence, the whole deal early. I was like, well, these are some check boxes I can mark off. Let's, Mm. let's, (laughs) Let's do that. Got the MBA, did all the right things. And yeah, 25 came and I had a panic of like, wait, is this it forever? Yeah. Is this? Mm-hmm. Is this the whole thing? And now I'm just going to have kids and then just wait till they're, yeah, it just, it, it kind of made me have some really good perspective and I tossed it all, I tossed it all out the window for the most <laughs> yeah. part, yeah. you know, I mean, and bless the ex-husband. He, he was, uh, you know, he understood. What do you mean? Extent, that was your, but... that was your doing. You were like, you were like, listen, I made a mistake. I know it's going to hurt you, but I just, it's not going to, we're not going to finish together kind of thing. Yeah. I think I got to the point where I was like, I don't think this life that I so carefully laid out for myself is the one that I actually want. And this is a thing I want to bring up because this happens to a lot of people and I think less so in LA where I live now, because everybody is just kind of this dreamer, crazy person that follows their heart. But in Florida, for sure, that's the path, right? You like, date somebody in college, you marry them after college, you have some kids, you buy the house, da, 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 da. And then, and then what happens? And those are decisions generally made by our 17, 18 year old selves for the rest of our lives. Totally. Yep. That girl doesn't know anything about what this version of me would possibly want or need. So I think that's an important thing for younger people to hear is that you should not, not only can't you, but you shouldn't attempt to figure out your whole life going off to college 
and then make decisions that are going to lock you into things from there. You got to explore. So here's what's a little weird about uh, our conversation today. So you graduated college in 2007. I graduated college in 1991. So we are definitely from two different generations. You look great. <laughs> oh, that's nice of you to say. I really, I'm going to kill these guys for the lighting in this studio. It's like bouncing off my bald spot. It drives me crazy. I tell my wife I'm getting the plugs and she's like, you're not getting the plugs. I'm like, I'm getting the plugs. One day I'm going to get the plugs. Got to be, got to make yourself happy, man. That is nice of you to say, but boy, I feel it at 48 some days. But anyway, um, what's weird about it is that we, we do come from two g- different generations, right? Um, yours is, is coming out of this recession, which I think changed people's perspective of the workplace completely. And mine is really kind of an old school. Um, you know, lots of people were getting, caring about the big company name on the business card and all that stuff. But over the last 23 years in, in being in business for myself and building a pretty good sized business, um, I think you and I are 100% on the same page about what the work environment looks like right now. And so that really kind of brings me to your, your new project, this, this one-year career, which I'm crazy about the tagline because I believe the exact same thing. Now, an employer shouldn't believe this. Hmm. The employer should be looking for lifelong um, employees, and I don't. And I encourage my employees to tap into what it is that they're supposed to do. And if my company plays a part in that during that journey, then aren't we going to have a good ride for six months, a year, two years, three years? Because here's what I learned a couple of years ago, Bailey. When I began to study the resumes that we would get and the performance of our two and three and four year tenured employees, I began to match the two of them up and realize that most people burn out after two or three or four years. And so their sales or their results or their enthusiasm can spike and they can do very well. And then it's going to plateau and plateau for me is death, right? You're either growing or dying. Absolutely. Agree. And, and so we begin to see that. And then if you, you overlay that thought process onto the resumes and you're like, well, wait a minute, everybody's leaving after two, three, four years. Yeah. So, so why the idea that they're going to last forever doesn't exist anymore. No. And, and the sooner I said to myself, the sooner I stop fighting and pushing that rock up the hill and completely pivot and change, the better I think we're going to have a great company. Absolutely. And that's what we did. We did that. We call it the torch around here where we literally burned everything and got back to company culture and mission statement a couple of years ago. And, um, and, and that's what I really want to dig in with you. How did this epiphany come to you, this one-year career mindset, thought process, and now course and program, how did this come to you? Well, and just to clarify, so when, when I say one-year career, it's different for everybody what that means. It doesn't by any means mean that after a year, you should quit your job and get a whole new one. That is not sustainable. I have done that. It is not a good way to spend your life. <laughs> My bad. <laughs> that, My, um, thank you for clarifying that. No, My but bad. that's okay because for some people... It's less about looking at your career in one-year increments. It's more about deciding to move forward in your career with the one-year career philosophy in mind, which is make big moves with small steps. And so I chose the year timeframe because you can get a lot done in your life in one year, but it's also a quick amount of time. I mean, the fact that we're in 2018 is mind boggling to me. Mm -hmm. I think somewhere in my brain, I'm in 2015, maybe Mm -hmm. July of 2015. Mm -hmm. So I recognize how quickly years go by. And I also love working in quarter systems. I've just, that's my leftover corporate days of Q1 goals and KPIs and all that stuff. 
And so the whole one-year career philosophy is a lot of what you've said. It's leveraging the fact that people don't stay at companies for 40 years anymore and get their gold watch. That's what I thought I was getting into when I graduated college. I was prepared for that life because that's how they prepare you in school. And then it just disappeared almost right in front of my eyes within one year of being an adult in the workforce. And so throughout the last 12 or so years of my life, I have kind of started to realize just with myself that I'm really fantastic for a company for like two to three years, because that's when you're still bringing all of your enthusiasm, your energy, your excitement, your fresh perspective, which cannot be overstated. Like having an employee that is not entrenched in your day-to-day struggles as a business is such a fantastic situation because they're coming in from the outside with fresh eyeballs and, you know, innovative ideas to help solve problems that your team might've, you know, knocked around a bunch and couldn't come to. So there's a lot of benefits from an employer perspective and you hit a few of them on the head for why embracing this philosophy just makes sense. I'm really glad you clarified because I think my setup was a little bit uh, jaded in that, um, you know, we're good together for a year and then I don't care what happens. Yeah, you're, no. you're right about that though. Um, but, but most employers never look at the, the relationship, employer-employee relationship like that. And, no, and I'm hoping that starts to change. You know, uh, I love uh, Reed Hoffman, the founder of LinkedIn, I, I, I think says it uh, very well. They, LinkedIn only puts together six months or 12 months employment contracts. And mm-hmm. he believes that that's the, that's the period of time that you can work at full pace, full throttle and engage and enjoy and then reevaluate six or 12 months later and say, hey, did we enjoy the last six or 12? Oh, you yeah. want to do it again? Should we try yeah. again? Let's, let's write it down again. You know, Matt, I say that relationships you have to commit to, right? Like you eventually settle down. Most likely most of us do. I've remarried. This one's going very well in case you're curious. Um, (laughs) I I think this one's going to last. But careers are the only thing you never have to fully commit to anymore. So I say be a career floozy. Go try a bunch of stuff. Like have a good time when you're not having fun or learning anymore and you're really not giving your best to a company and you're not getting their best anymore. That's okay, you know? say good game and move on to something else because that's going to be what continues to re-energize and refresh both companies and employees' individual career paths. Well, my gig is always about money though, right? Um, I mean, I am a money-driven guy. Um, I am not afraid to say that I have traded a lot of happiness for money. I've never sold my will or my soul or my character for money ever, Um, but I'm interested in making money. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I, I do think that people who jump around, unless they have built a book of business and they're jumping around with that book of business to, impl- to new, new company, new company, new company, it is hard for them to get their hands around their money situation. They may get their hands around their happiness situation, but they still might be financially broke in chasing this ending, never-ending dream of purely pure bliss of the workplace. What is your opinion of what I, what I just said there? So I think you're right for some industries and for some roles, but I think you're actually completely wrong on some others, I which, you know, hey, awesome. you win some, you lose some. I love it. Um, but it's, it, these are all recent findings, though. So to be fair, we're just starting to see um, both the benefits and the downsides of kind of this job hopping culture, yeah. right, that definitely emerged in the last five, ten years. Great, yeah. Um, there was a great article in Fast Company, and it was something like, 
your likelihood of making more money decreases by 50% if you stay in a job longer than three years, something like that. Mm. And the thought behind it is that, you know what happens, you get in a company, you get in a groove, whether they have like a standard promotional strategy in place where my first job out of undergrad, the one that suspended all promotions, had a lovely at two years, every two years without fail, unless you really screwed up, you were getting promoted, you were getting a raise, you were getting a new title. My two years came like two weeks after they suspended promotions. So, you know, 22 year old Bailey is like, but, but I put in the time I did the work. I did really good work. And now none of that matters just because things outside of my control. So what are you telling me, Bailey, that every environment should be looked at as a meritocracy that, that those, you know, the, the, the strongest, uh, and fittest deserve the, uh, the movement inside the org. Uh, yeah, I am saying. Yeah, that. man, now we're on the right page. Now yeah. we're talking. My world yes, is a meritocracy, period. I mean, that sucked the joy and excitement sure. and motivation right out of me at such an early age because suddenly I saw that all of this hard work I had put in kind of didn't matter until it was going to, you know, some for- unforeseeable date in the future. It ended up being an additional year. Mm-hmm. I actually left my job about a week after my three year anniversary. And after my promotion, and it was like a little too late at that point, you know, too little too late. So going back to this whole job hoppers don't make more money in the long run, what they're finding is that, you know, you do get stuck in those grooves in a company and you can end up just stagnating because you maybe just got a raise six months earlier. Why You're not getting another raise again. But when you strategically move through your career and you leverage your new title and your experience, and if you're really kicking ass at work, which you should be, you should be giving your all, they're paying you money, that is your lifeblood, then you should have a stacked resume that you can then point to that are actionable things you've done at that company that make you a valuable person to hire, at which point you can leverage all of those things and increase your salary a little bit with every new job you take. So you end up moving up quicker and making more money quicker than if you stuck it out at one job for the long run. Yeah, everybody's so afraid of that, though. I mean, I have a friend, when I started my company in 95, so 23 years ago, busted ass broke. She would come uh, through Dallas because they have a big apparel mart, right, Uh, the show every year in Dallas, and she was in the fashion business. And so she would come through Dallas, and I got to hang out with all her beautiful friends, and Mm -hmm. she would pick up the tab for dinner, and it was just like I couldn't wait for Andrea to come back. Does she need another friend? That sounds great. Well, (laughs) you know, that was a long time ago. That was 23 years ago, right? But, um, But anyway, and we're still friends today, but every time she would come through Dallas, uh, she was with a new company. And I would say, well, what's the story? And she would say, I kicked ass. I busted my ass. I went in for a raise. They didn't give it to me. I left, took my book of business, and I went to the competition, and they paid me what I want. And then nine months later, she'd come through Dallas again with a new company. She did the same thing. And that probably happened five or six times. And now she is a unbelievably high-powered fashion executive in New York City, and no one held it against her once. Yeah, this job hopper record speaks for you. Totally. This idea of, well, they're a job hopper. No, listen, we're hiring paid guns. Yeah. So don't be afraid of that. Especially in sales and things like that where, you know, companies just want a kick-ass salesperson. They want somebody that's going to be incredible. And they know that if you're moving around on your own volition, you're probably a high-priced item. Um, Yeah, I think the job hopper thing – you know, it's we're moving into a phase where it's going to be seen 
less as a, a red flag when you're looking at a resume and more as a, oh, okay, tell me more about this story because it's really about controlling your narrative. If you're going to be one of those people that leaves after one to two years, you bet your ass you're going to need to explain why and how to that hiring manager. I love it. My friend uh, Bethany Williams, I quote her in my book. Uh, she says, you need to be putting together your own annual report every year. A hundred percent. That's and, a huge part of the one-year career philosophy. And literally make your presentation and do it, whether it's in a, a visual presentation, a PowerPoint presentation, but just don't go in there and say, you know, I've been here long enough. It's time for a raise. Give me yep. ROI. Give me your reasons. If you don't get it, be prepared for plan B, which is later, Gator. Yeah. And if you're a high quality employee and you know it and you can back that up, you're going to have options. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't just be a slacker and be like, I want to raise every six months. If I don't get it, I'm leaving. Like, first of all, it's not easy to get a new job over and over. Not only is it not easy, it's strenuous on your emotions. Like going through the job hopping process or the job search process sucks. It sucks so bad for the hiring manager and the employee. And so you really have to be somebody that has great connections that can help you bounce around if that's the way you want to do it. Um, but I still, even, even with this job hopping mentality not being a negative thing, I still don't recommend doing it more than you really need to. You need to assess why you're leaving regularly. If it's all about chasing that paycheck, fine. That's a valid reason. But if it's, I don't know, I don't get along with my boss, I'm finding a new job. Or I don't know, I'm just not challenged enough, I'm finding a new job. You have to start with you and figure out what you can fix about your own behavior and your own attitude before you can start blaming the company. So let's go there. Give me two, three things that you think everybody need to, the check boxes they need to check before they can begin to say that, that the company's letting me down, right? Mm-hmm. They're not challenging me. Give me the two or three things that you say, hey, let's put your big boy, big girl pants on and get these three checks, these boxes checked. I think it's getting real with yourself first and foremost. And what I have my workshop attendees do a lot is literally write down every single job they've ever had, write down the reason they took the job. Like what were they excited about the night before their first day? And then what was the reason they finally left? And what we're looking for in that are patterns of behavior, right? So if they constantly take new jobs because they're bored at their last job, that's kind of a mini red flag for them. If they're constantly quitting jobs because of the same reason, another red flag. And so I always have my attendees and my, my people that I help coach look inward and think, okay, what's the real message behind what I'm telling myself here? If I'm always leaving because of my boss, perhaps I'm better off working for myself or working in a situation where I'm not micromanaged. Now that's an external force, right? Like if you have a bunch of micromanaging bosses, that could be bad luck and it could actually be the case. But I would imagine that there's also an element of perhaps not being a good follower or not being able to take uh, criticism or, you know, instruction. And there are definitely people that are that are like that. Mm. Um, so it's making sure that the right like the actual things you think are wrong are actually the problem. And that could even be in your personal life, too. Some of the times when I was most unhappy in my work was when I had a really crappy boyfriend that was sucking the confidence right out of me. And I was just not my full self. He must have been in a band when you moved to California. You met the guy, he had the guy long hair. He was a writer. Same thing, same difference, a creative type. There it is. Exactly. Yeah, he was kind of miserable and that made me miserable, which made me hate my job 
And frankly, my job wasn't that bad. Yeah, cool. So that's cool real. reflection. Yeah, that's real. cool. Yeah. Okay, so so um, you know, for, for me, I like to call that clarity. What what was the term you refer to that first step that you just said? Is it uh, you're saying getting real? I'm calling. I think it clarity. I just said getting real with yourself. Yeah, taking a real hard look at the actual situation instead of what you've made up in your head about it. Awesome. How about number two? What would you say the next step of evolution after that one might be? I think you really need to get clear again on what would actually make you happy then. I think when we list out all the things that we're not happy with about our current situation, then we just are able to flip it. We're like, fine, what's the opposite of that? What would make this not a thing that made me want to quit? You pretty much before looking for a new job, you need to exercise all of your options there. Um, I think being clear with yourself about the things that are actually making you unhappy and then attempting to fix those is for sure step two. Mm. You need to put in all of the effort you can because at the end of the day, you're in charge of your career. Nobody else is. Your manager isn't in charge of your happiness. They are in charge of running their team. They are in charge of making sure that everything happens the way it should. And yes, of course, they should also be professionally developing you to the best of their extent. But you're in charge of your life. So start to fix the things that you think you can actually fix. Mm, I like to say that I never uh, looked at it that way, but I, I'm, I just wrote down, I'm taking copious notes here, but I wrote down, fix your baggage. <laughs> fix that baggage. So much of it's psychological, you guys. It's, it's funny. And then um, the third thing, and actually I think this it should probably be the first or second step, honestly, is having an open, honest, transparent conversation with your manager. Um, And this is the thing that I'm really hoping to change the mindset of with the one-year career philosophy as it relates to managers is creating a culture of trust and transparency that cuts out all of the BS that we both create, both managers and employees create, instead of just having a damn conversation. I think if we were all clear and on the same page with what we want to get out of the job, what they need to get out of us as an employee from the get-go, and then continue to check in with one another, this whole like festering wound thing wouldn't happen where you're not suddenly ready to just flip your desk and quit. It should have happened months earlier. You should have had a conversation that was like, hey, can we chat? I'm feeling really frustrated by X. And then once you have that list of all the things that you hate about your job, I do not recommend calling a meeting with your manager and saying, page one, I hate the coffee situation here. You know, don't do that. Come at it, as you said earlier, thoughtfully and with a strategic approach where you're bringing facts to the table, separate emotion out because people just can't argue when emotions are involved and just be honest and clear on expectations versus reality and what you need to be able to want to keep going here. And there's a right and a wrong way to do that conversation, but it needs to happen regardless. So I really, I mean, I think what we're talking about here is kind of from the employee side. As we as we continue to turn the corner here, I'd love to start to move on your recommendations or suggestions for employers. Yeah. Because uh, I believe the employee, a lot of employees are far more open to these three steps that you just gave these great steps than the employer is. Yeah. You're and, right. And, and the, the problem with being the employer is you may sense it, but you're not sure how to have that conversation. And so you're like, well, let me just sweep it under the carpet. Yeah. And I kind of sense it, but if I guess I then I'm wrong and maybe I open up a can of worms that I didn't right. need to open up. You don't up. want to pick that scab. <laughs> <laughs> nice. For a nice visual this morning. Because you know what? You pick the scab, it leaves a scar. 
Yeah. And so you got to be careful about that. So let's let's turn the corner and go your expertise to the employer base that begins to create an environment that helps this. And it is truly an openness and a transparency and a trust. So how do we how do we change and, and turn these big ships that have been built for all these years? Well, so there's a few perspectives, right? I mean, if you're starting out as one of those big ships where things have been moving the way that they always have for a very long time. And I think what managers are starting to see in their own company cultures and their teams are not only, well, first and foremost, millennials are the largest demographic um, generation in the workforce now, which is crazy. Um, It's good and it's also presenting a ton of challenges for these traditional companies because millennial mindset is one that wants continued growth. They want the trust. They want value and brand mission alignment. Um, They want opportunities to, you know, experiment a little bit and maybe work from, you know, different locations and have flexible hours, all of those things, because they know they're probably not making a lot of money. So those are the trade-offs, right? Those are the asks now. So for managers, they're starting to see this group of people come in and not only are they expecting different things than they've had to give in the past to employees, But I'm finding that the millennial mindset is starting to infiltrate into the Gen X baby boomer mindset as well, where they're looking around being like, first, they were annoyed with millennials, right? They're like, oh, these entitled millennials, all they want is more, more, more. Now I think they're starting to see, oh, these guys might be onto something. Like, I would like to have happiness in my job. I would like a flexible schedule. I would like the opportunity to go back and learn and have tuition reimbursement opportunities and yada, yada. So the millennial mindset is really what has kind of taken over, I think, the workforce. And that's why we're starting to see so much rapid change. So from a manager's perspective, I think if you're, if you're having to turn a big ship, like we talked about, then I think the first step, you can't single employees out. I think it's having a big conversation with your whole team so that regardless of where your individual employees are, it's not personal, right? Because to your point, like we don't want to pick the scab if there's not a scab there. Like we don't want to make a scar if we don't have to. So it's about setting the new tone, which Matt takes time, especially if the culture has been the same for 30, 40 years, that's going to be a big shift to turn, but you've got to start somewhere. So I think it's having those open conversations as a team and then individually to take the temperature of where everybody actually is right now. So I think that's a real takeaway for the audience um, on both sides of the fence, employee or employer. What, what I know for sure as an employer in this new environment, with whether it's millennial or Gen X, um, is – and you refer to it as setting the tone. I refer to it as company culture, core values, yeah. and mission statement. You have to be crystal clear on what you get when you come on board with us. You do. Or or with that company. So is it a boiler room mentality? Is it a touchy-feely mentality? Is it an open door or a closed door mentality? But if because then you can cast the net and attract those types of millennials or Gen Xs that want what you offer. But this wishy-washy, I'm not exactly sure who we are or what we are, and we're just going to kind of keep our fingers crossed that we maybe we can mold someone into what we want them to be. It does not work anymore. And it's picking, not efficient. Picking is so hard for, for anyone, whether it's a company. People are, how do you pick your spouse? That's why some people never get married. How do you, how do you pick your career? That's why some people float around. How do you pick your financial results? Because people are afraid if they fail, what are they going to do? So they don't even try. The greatest thing we ever did was pick our company culture and then become relentless to it. Freakazoids about 
four things, and I, I talk about it a number of different times so people can look it up. You can, you can you know, look on our website. You can see our mission statement and core values on our website. But I'm a freak about who we are and why we are who we are. And that's why we attract the kind of people that we do. And that's why when we let someone go, it's no longer this horrible ripping and tearing that it once was. It's just like, hey, we all tried. Didn't yeah. quite work out. We wish you the best of luck. And, and people leave. You know, I used to throw a box at you when you left here, literally. And I would say, get your shit and get out. Here's your box. Right. And now. Cold. <laughs> yeah, listen, I mean, you know, I mean, yes and no. Cold or maybe I was doing them a favor. I just yeah. wasn't doing it in a humanistic and, and, you know, karmic way. But, um, but that does, you can't, you cannot have that anymore. That has to stop. Well, I think you're on the right track completely with being relentless about who you are, what you do, why you do, because when you're looking for a job, you can search for job title, you can search for department, you can search for industry. The thing that is the hardest to know before starting at a company is what the culture is going to be like. Mm. And usually in the interview process, everybody's lying to everybody, right? You're putting on your best show. Even when you're interviewing somebody, you're going to take them to the nicest conference room in the place. (laughs) I had a good friend who went to go work for this um, like surf apparel company. And all of her interviews were held in the most beautiful boardroom with an ocean view. There were surfboards hanging everywhere. She was like, oh my God, this place is so cool. She takes the job day one. They open up the door to where her office is going to be. It's a cubicle farm, a beige cubicle farm. They totally baited and switched her. And that's what happens a lot of times when you're looking as an employee for Mm. a job, you don't get to see what it would really be like. You know, you don't get to try the pants on before you buy them. And from a manager's side, I think you are doing yourself the biggest disservice when you bait and switch because you've just lied to your brand new employee. On day one, they saw it. Breaking one. That is not the tone you want to be setting. You know, I'll I'll tell you the change we made. We do a three interview process here. The first interview is uh, usually with that department head who's looking to hire. Uh, and I'll usually come in and just get a flavor for the person at that, at that interview. The second interview was literally with every other person in our company. Smart. And the third interview is we give you 50 customer service surveys. And you'll get on the phone. I don't care what position you're being hired for. And you will call our customers and ask them on a scale of one to five, did we return your phone call? Did you like doing business with us? Would you do business with us again? You get to see it all. And I, I, say to the, I say to the people, I say, the thing you don't need to be worried about is who we are. You need to be worried about who you are and whether you want who we are. I would be willing to bet, too, that you will not have a situation of employees leaving your company after a year. Well, now it's much better. But in the beginning, when I thought everybody wanted what I wanted in life, which was just a shot. I mean, that's all I wanted my whole life was just somebody give me a shot. I didn't get it. I had to go make it. Um, but that's not it, man. People need it's not more it than for that. everybody. And the, well, new, that, yeah. the new millennials too. I'd like your opinion on this. I think the greatest management skill you can have for the new millennials is to provide them career development, personal development, and leadership. 100%. We are used to not making a lot of money. Yeah. Who's, well, you're <laughs> saying I, we as in you're, you're positioning I'm yourself a, I'm as a, a millennial? I'm a 33-year-old person. So I'm towards the top of the millennials. I'm actually in a weird zone with it because I'm certainly not the same as a 21-year-old mm-hmm. um, by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm also not fully a Gen Xer. And so, and my age bracket, like say 30 to 35, I think we're a unique group because we were at the top of the millennials, the, the oldest millennials. And so we've 
we graduated in the recession. We saw all of, all of this shit break down in front of us, basically. Um, and we have a lot of empathy for the people only a few years ahead of us who are in totally a different space. Yeah, but you guys um, are also about to shit your pants. Because <laughs> because you your age group is really starting to get into that. I'm out of my 20s where I could yeah. float around. And now I really got to get serious about money or I got to get serious about happiness. I mean, that is 100% why I'm doing what I'm doing, because I had more people in my, you know, small demographic from that age range being like, okay, well, we're not these idiot 20 year olds bouncing around anymore, but we're not on the, you know, corporate VP track anymore either. So who are we and what are we? What do we do with ourselves? And so people felt really aimless. That's where the career experiment came from. That whole philosophy was figure out your best next move. Not all of them, just your next one. And it grew out of my own frustration for feeling a little bit lost and unappreciated, undervalued, underpaid for sure. And that's where, you know, that's what led me to today. So I'm a huge fan of it as we started the show. I mean, I really think you're on to something here. I think both both sides of the fence, employer and employee, really need coaching and figuring out how do they maneuver through this scenario. But I'd like, as we come across the goal line here and finish, I'd like your opinion on whether or not people do need to be in business for themselves. Because I think a lot of frustration in the workforce is, well, you know, uh, I need to be my own boss. And, and I am of the opinion that 99% of the people out there should not be their own boss. They have no idea how hard it is to be a real entrepreneur. What's your opinion on that? We are 100% in agreement on that. I was having a conversation. I was actually doing like a rapid fire one-year career me coach session uh, with a friend the other day who's 26 and she was coming up against this problem. She's like, you know, I've been doing PR for so long. Like I want to for so long, by the way, so long, um, <laughs> six years. Anyway. Um, I've been doing PR for so long. I want to, you know, build upon this and figure out what's next. And all the things she was describing to me about what she wanted sounded like an entrepreneur lifestyle. And so I gave her some tips on how to work towards that. But when we hung up on our call, I said, I was like, listen, I think, yes, of course you can be your own boss. Everybody can technically be their own boss. Everybody is not meant to be their own boss. It is hard, hard work. Um, It is worth it, but you have to sort of have that mentality of, you know, being okay failing and being okay not making a lot of money for a little while. And with her, and I believe this wholeheartedly, I think you should not go out on your own, again, like being married prior to 30. And the reason is, In your 20s, you're getting to learn on somebody else's dime and make mistakes without worrying about people losing their jobs and really experiment and try new things and learn from the people that have been doing it for 30 years, right? When you go out on your own, you immediately pull yourself out of the school of life, right? You immediately are surrounded only by you depending on how you do your work situation. Um, and you're suddenly, you're learning, but you're learning from yourself and your own mistakes. And the risks are much greater than if you were working for somebody still. So can anybody be their own boss? Yeah, if you want it badly enough. Is everybody meant to be? God, no. And should people leave before 30 and start their own consultancy? Who the hell are you to start a consultancy yeah. prior to 30? I mean, I'm 33 and I still feel like a total imposter most days, but um, I also fully intend to go back to work for a company at some point. I love working for companies. I just wanted to explore this option for a little while. Yeah, I think you got a real handle on it, though, and a, and a very unique uh, impression. I, I talk to most people about being an entrepreneur, being an employee, and I always use this. I say the number two person at Facebook that nobody's ever heard of is worth billions. Yeah. Right? 
you can make a ton of money if you do a lot of the things we outlined here under the organization that's willing to give you the shot. Um, Absolutely. And there's a real place for entrepreneurs. Totally. People who have an entrepreneurial mindset within a company. My buddy. uh, desperately need those people. Yes. My buddy RJ Grimshaw is writing a book called Entrepreneurship. And uh, and he is uh, he's going to do well with that book. He's a CEO of a of a division of a publicly traded bank, and um, that's exactly how he runs the whole show. And he yeah, wants everybody to be there. Yeah. So Bailey, listen. Let's let's give the audience some, some uh, opportunities to find out more about you. Please go through your social media handles and your website. So I keep it easy. It's Bailey Hancock, but there is no E in Bailey. So Great. B A I L Y H A N C O C K. You can find me at baileyhancock.com and then on every social channel, I nabbed that name because everybody else that's named Bailey has an E in it. (laughs) So my SEO is awesome. Thanks, Mom. (laughs) (laughs) Well done. Bailey, thanks again for your time. Listen, we could have gone on for a lot more because this is a major deal that is not going away. What we're talking about here is not a flash in the pan on either side, employee or employer side. No, and I'm glad you're running your company with this mindset already, and I think you're going to be very successful with that. So I appreciate you. Bailey, thanks, thanks for, for being on. on the show. It's absolutely my pleasure. I'll see you down the road. Thanks, Matt. That's our episode this week with your host, Matt Monero. Check us out every Friday at 12 p.m. Central as we discuss money, your life, and how you need more money.